Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. And this season I am covering cases from the stunning Venice, Italy. And it is October, y'all, the greatest month of the year. I cannot tell you how many horror movies I've already watched, and it's just the beginning. I think yesterday I watched three horror movies... I saw, I was streaming them at home, but I watched Bug, which I'd seen on, on, uh, on the stage, which was fantastic, but the movie was just as good. It was, I think 2006, 2008, something like that. Really fantastic. Um, watched The Ruins, The Ruins, with the carnivorous plants. That was fun. That was a joy ride. Who doesn't love to be attacked by carnivorous plants? And then I'm trying to remember the name of the next one. It was something about eyes. Where the mom was brutally murdered with the kid in the house. It was horrible. It's all in black and white. I'll have to look it up. It's really good though. Like really well done. And then I just saw Pearl in theaters. The prequel to X. And I am a obsessed. Mia Goth deserves an Academy Award nomination for her performance in Pearl as Pearl. She killed it and you all need to go out and see it immediately. You don't need to see X before you see Pearl. You can watch X after you watch Pearl but there's going to be a third one called Maxine and I am just as excited for that one because X was great I think I enjoy Pearl even more. It was so good. I also keep passing pumpkins. So where I work is close to Union Square in New York City, Manhattan. And Union Square always does, like, markets. Like a market every... I don't know if it's every day. It's most days of the week. I don't know when it's going to end. I'm assuming it's a summer thing, but they just started having a tent filled with pumpkins and gourds. And all I want to do is buy 15 to 30 fucking pumpkins, but I have no way of lugging all of those back to my apartment in Brooklyn. It's impossible. Also, I have nowhere to put any of them because this year I'm just decorating my own room. So I'll probably just get a couple pumpkins, but it's hard. I'm from Illinois. Illinois produces the most pumpkins out of any United State or out of any of the states in the United States. So I am obsessed. We always go apple picking and usually they have pumpkins there as well. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm going to try to limp myself to two pumpkins two carvable pumpkins. I might get a couple small ones as well, but don't hold me to it. I'm going to watch Hocus Pocus 2 just came out and I haven't watched it yet because 
I'm going to wait until I'm carving pumpkins to watch Hocus Pocus 2. It's going to be a whole thing. It's going to be an event for myself, and I am stoked. But we're going to jump in tonight's episode. I have more of a true crime case tonight than I do a paranormal case. I am going to let you in on a story a coworker told me about his paranormal experience, but we'll jump. We'll do that after the episode and it's uh it's its own thing but tonight i wanted to bring you a more true crime murderer situation like i'm sure you've all heard of hh holmes serial killer from chicago and he's kind of known as the united states first serial killer and someone i covered on my first season of the podcast um even more infamous jack the ripper unknown serial killer in London. He's known as the world's first modern serial killer. Serial killers have been around forever, pretty much, and even if we don't have written proof of their existence, they have been killing people since the beginning of time. The first ever serial killer is said to be Gila del Rey from the 1400s, And I may cover him on a future episode. It might be a bonus episode. I'm not sure yet. He's very, I'm like intrigued by his story, but I don't want to give too much away up front about tonight's episode. So let's just get started. It is June 14th, 1779 at one in the morning, just outside the San Trovaso church. We're in Venice, Italy, remember. Back then, known as Gervasio e Protasio, that was the church, a group of people gather around a well that sits in the square next to the church. The well is still there today, by the way. The head of the district, Antonio Catullo, who was living in the parish at the time, came down to see what the fuss was about. And as he peered into the well, he could barely make out something white floating at the bottom. It's one in the morning. It's pitch black. It's 1779, so I don't really know how much, like, maybe there might be lanterns. But I'm pretty sure the only light you're getting is from the moon. And remember, there wasn't police at the time. So the closest Venice had was that night watch I've talked previously about. They were more or less responsible for preventing crime, not investigating a crime. So Antonio ended up calling an official, Avogador di Camun, who in modern terms was a public prosecutor. And he the public prosecutor brought along the Magistrito Alasanita, who was a health official. And Venice created the Health Magistrate in 1485, which was essentially one person hoping to prevent epidemics, essentially. It eventually grew to three people, and then in 1979, a health committee. Fun fact, Venice was the first city in Italy to give free inoculations to the public for smallpox. 
Anyway, the prosecutor and health official pulled the object out of the well, and I am sure you know where this is going. They did, in fact, pull up a body, just a body, no head, no legs, no eternal organs. And when they managed to pull the body out of the well, the sun was beginning to rise. They had no idea what to do with it, and they wouldn't have enough time to figure out next steps because shortly after recovering the body, there was a call to fish something out of another well not too far away. So think about that. It is 1 a.m. All these people are like, what the fuck is at the bottom of our water? Our drinking water. And they pull it out. And it's literally just a torso and arms. That's it. Nothing else. A naked torso and arms. I don't know who's drinking water out of that well next, but... I don't even know how they made the water safe for drinking after blood had been in that well for so long. Gross. No thank you. And we're about to experience another bit in another well. So just north of the first well was a well in Campo Santa Margarita, another public plaza. The day was just getting started and people were flooding the plaza when the two men the prosecutor and the health official, showed up to see what was floating in this well. They pulled out a pelvis attached to two legs. And you would naturally think that these would be the legs of the torso found hours earlier in the first well, but the magistrate wanted to be absolutely positive, so he hired two surgeons to study the remains. The surgeons, Gaetano Sarto and Pietro Verini, said that the legs were no doubt part of the torso, and they were looking at one man in two or more pieces. One victim without a head or internal organs at this point. And the wells sit about a 10-minute walk from each other, so they believed whomever dumped the body knew their way around town. You know, it's a major city, and even though it's at night, there's still people wandering the streets, whether it's the night watch or other people going home. And Venice is tight. It's not... You're exposed all the time, so... You had to have known where each well was and know your way around and how to get there. Otherwise, you could be wandering the streets of Venice for hours trying to find a place to dump either the torso and arms or the legs and pelvis, which I'm sure were heavy to carry around. I don't know how they did it necessarily, whether... They wrapped them in a sheet and dragged them, or they were in a cart of some sort and wheeled it around. I'm not sure. But again, 10-minute walk between the two wells. 
they must have known, or at least this is what the thought was, that they must have known their way around, meaning that they had lived in, live or lived in Venice. The rest of that day was spent trying to figure out who this man was. They were still missing the head, of course, and no one had come forward about a missing person. So the authorities were truly at a loss. Again, there's no DNA at this point, so it was more about relying on the community to know who these people were when they were when they turned up dead. On June 15th, 1779, at 11 a.m., this is the following day, someone saw something floating down the Santa Chiara Canal, which I believe is now the Scomenzera Canal. Not positive, but at the time it was Santa Chiara Canal. They shouted for help, and guards nearby quickly came to see what was wrong. When they reached into the canal, they pulled out a head, quickly concealing it in a basket, and brought the head to the officer's guard in San Marco. I'm assuming they just like grabbed a basket from a vendor nearby, because I don't think guards were just carrying around baskets willy-nilly like that. But they didn't want to just carry a decapitated head around Venice. Back in the day, they may have done that, you know, in the 1400s and 1500s and so on, when they were displaying body parts all around Venice. But this is like, we're approaching the 1800s now. I think they've become aware of how traumatizing that could be, especially for children and so on and so forth. So they tried concealing it as they moved it from the canal all the way to the guard's office, which I believe was inside the Doge's palace at this point, which again is in San Marco Square. They were keeping the rest of the body in the Doge's palace. So when the two surgeons looked at the head, they did conclude that this was the head that belonged to the body that they recovered yesterday, and that there was a stab wound near his first vertebra, immediately under the skull, and that was what killed him. They speculated that the weapon was of a thick blade, possibly a butcher's knife, and the man had bushy brown hair and a recently shaved face. So that's all they're working with at this point. At least that's all what the palace is telling the public. Later that day, on the 15th of June, around 5 p.m., more body parts were fished out of the Judeca Canal, which is the huge canal on the southern part of Venice, separating the historic islands from Judeca Island. These body parts were also put in a basket and brought to the palace in San Marco. And they never said who fished them out, but by using the word fished, I'm going to assume that it was fishermen. Because again, that canal's large, so I'm not... And they're internal organs. I, I guess they were floating, maybe. 
but I'm sure they were fished out by fishermen and they're like, this is a heart. What's going on? When they were brought to the palace, they were the missing organs of this mystery man who was seemingly chopped up and tossed all over Venice. The corpse was finally complete, but the authorities still had no idea who the man was. There wasn't police or investigators at the time. So usually the family of the victim would have to take it upon themselves to hunt the killer down and either kill them themselves or bring the killer to court. However, they didn't even know if this man had a family. And if so, were they living in Venice? And if they were, why had they not reported the man missing? There were, two, there were more questions than answers, of course. So a lawyer, Getano Minotto, was put in charge of the investigation since he was known for his insight and inflexibility. I don't know if that's a great characteristic to have as a lawyer, but maybe they mean determination, stubbornness. Inflexible just sounds negative as, like, inflexible. Inflexible. He's not doing his daily yoga. Inflexible. I don't like that, though. Determination. That sounds a little too positive for inflexibility. I don't know. Insight and flexibility. That's why he was hired for this job. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. He was going to figure it out, basically. Gaetano Minotto started with talking to representatives from each Paris and Venice to find out if anyone was missing from the last month or so. At this time, if a body was unidentified, they would leave it on display for people to come and take a look to see if they knew the person, which sounds horrible. I don't really want to be walking down the street and having like a lineup of corpses with a sign saying, do you know this person? That doesn't sound fun. And if you're going to do it, it has to be in October. It's the only month you're allowed to do that. I wonder when artists started making mock-ups of people. You know, when police hire artists to draw a victim or sketch out a corpse so they don't have to put a photo of the corpse online because they don't know who it is. I don't think that happens very often anymore because of DNA, but DNA is a whole other thing. People refusing to give DNA for websites so the police can help track down murderers is wild to me. It's like, who are you protecting? Yourself? Your brother? Why not give your DNA so police can hunt down a killer? You're doing society a service. But that's for a whole other episode. That's another time. So people were just walking past the palace and looking at the this dead body and seeing if they knew him. Unfortunately, no one did know him. And frustrated that no leads came up in a week, Minotto decided to place a statement all over Venice and 
I think it was similar to a newspaper. I don't know what it was exactly, but it was something that was passed out within the Venoto region. Not just Venice, but it went out to like the farmlands and stuff as well. I'm going to I'm going to say it's a newspaper. It's very similar to a newspaper. It was posted in every church in Venice as well, which is great because I'm sure you can guess how many churches there were in an Italian city in the 1700s. A lot. He also posted it above the famed Rialto Bridge, which is pretty much the main bridge in Venice, or at least it was at the time. The uh, sign read, quote, The recovered severed head belonging to the above-mentioned body will be displayed publicly during the next days by the Avogaria di Comune's office, together with a torn and decayed handwritten note which was twisted around a lock of the head above the right ear, unquote. The authorities decided to bury the body, but leave the head so that it could be recognized. They also discovered a fragment of a letter tangled in the man's hair. How it got there, I have no clue, but part of it had initials on it, which were V-F-G-C. So again, this man's head was floating in a canal. I truly don't know how a wet letter that was not attached to anything, but just like tangled in his hair survived. Or even how it got there. Because I don't think the murderer would have left it with the body. It's very strange. Very strange. But the initials again are VFGC. And they're only displaying the head. They buried the rest of the body. So not only... Are you going to walk by the palace to see if you know this person? But you're going to walk by this body, or you're going to walk by the palace and see a severed head just chilling. I don't know if they put it in a glass box. I don't know if they left it, propped it up somehow. I have no idea, but that sounds horrible. Nothing came of this until June 26th, which was probably around a week later, when a man named... Giovanni Cestonaro showed up at the Avogador's office saying that he may know who the man was. He was very nervously looking at the head and immediately recognized the disfigured head as his brother, Francesco. Again, this is so sad. Identifying a body is traumatic. Seeing a dead body is traumatic. They're usually loved ones, and they don't ever look the way you remember them. On top of that, this man was clearly murdered. He's not chopping up his own body. So seeing someone's face that's been shot 
or stabbed or is decaying seems even worse. Like, we don't know how long his head was in the water, but water fucks up your skin, your body, especially when you're dead. So I'm sure it was not a cute look. I watched the movie Crimson Peak for the first time recently, and this woman had to identify her father who had his head bashed in. So to see that, or even to see a beheaded head of your brother, I could not even imagine that. And he's doing all of this in public, right? This has it on display in public for anyone to go see it. That's trauma, mama. That is pure trauma. I hope he sought out a therapist after this, What? whenever that became a thing, because that's too much. Also, Crimson Peak was a great movie, by the way, so go watch that. So at this point, the magistrate wanted to make sure that this was, in fact, Francesco Cestonaro, Giovanni's brother. And so they asked if he knew what the the initials meant on the letter. Giovanni stated that he sent his brother a letter and signed it VFGC, which in Italian, or which in English means your brother, Giovanni Cestonaro. In Italian, fratello is brother. I believe if you conjugate correctly, it would be voi for you. So voi fratello, but it would be the conjugation of that. So your brother, you brother, Giovanni Cestonaro, so VFGC. The authorities questioned Giovanni for a bit, asking him why he didn't report his brother missing and if he knew who could have murdered his brother Francesco. Giovanni was indeed born in Venice, but at the time of the murder, he was living in Este, a small town southeast of Venice, so he didn't hear of the murder until he received that newspaper thing with the description from Minotto. Giovanni quickly traveled to Venice to see if it was in fact his brother. And as to who was behind the murder and dismemberment, Giovanni quickly pointed the finger at his sister-in-law, Veneranda Porta. And we're going to take a quick break here, and I'll be right back. So Veneranda Porta was a 33-year-old widow from Sicale when she met Francesco. Sicale is north of Venice, so not too far from Venice. I believe it's still within the Venoto region. 
But Veneranda and Francesco quickly got married in Corfu, Greece, which baffled Francesco's family. They never met her, and they knew Francesco was restless and loved adventure, but they thought the marriage happened rather quickly. Veneranda had two children from her first marriage, and soon after, Francesco and Veneranda had a daughter of their own. However, Francesco didn't have a ton of money. He was a hairdresser and housekeeper, which sounds pretty progressive to me, having a male hairdresser and housekeeper. Love that for him. And Veneranda only had the money from her first husband, pretty much. Though she semi-worked as a maid in houses as well. So, because they couldn't really afford having three kids, they sent their daughter to live in Venice with Francesco's uncle until they had enough money to move to Venice themselves. Their daughter lived in Venice for four years before Francesco and Venerando joined her. They lived in San Barnaba, a neighborhood on the south end of the historic Venice Islands. And when they sent their daughter to Venice, I don't think she was a baby. Like, I think they tried having her live at home for a few years and then decided that it was probably better if she lived with Francesco's uncle in Venice. But when they moved to Venice, they all ended up living together again at the south end of the historic Venice Islands. Usually, families had to hire their own investigators at the time, as I mentioned earlier. And by investigators, I mean vigilantes. And that's what they were actually called. They weren't summoning Batman, you know. Vigilantes were private security agents. However, because of this brutal crime, the authorities in Venice immediately arrested Veneranda on circumstantial evidence, like the fact that she never reported her husband missing, she lived between the two wells that the body parts were discovered in, and Giovanni received letters from his brother stating that Francesco thought his wife was cheating on him. So she looked very suspicious. And they do always say that when there is a murder, you should look at the family first because it's usually someone you know. And this fits perfectly for that. I mean, not announcing that your husband is missing. That's a red flag. For sure. So the guards took Veneranda to the prison in the Doge's palace while they did some more digging into the allegations. When they found out that Veneranda did in fact have a lover, they arrested him as well. His name was Stefano Fantini. He was a footman living in Venice for about six years, though no one is quite sure how long the affair lasted. 
The guards found him hiding in an abandoned house on the northern side of Venice off the Marine Canal. Which again is suspicious. You're hiding? For what? If you didn't do anything wrong, why are you hiding? You know? You know? When Veneranda was brought to court, she stated that on June 12th, 1779, she had an argument with her husband Francesco that escalated to him hitting her. She said this wasn't the first time he's fig- physically abused her. And Veneranda claimed Francesco accused her of infidelity with Stefano Fantini and that Francesco wanted to kill both of them for it. Now, if the affair is actually happening, is it an accusation? Is it an accusation if he's just truth-telling? Like, he knows they're, he knows they're having an affair, so he's just laying down the facts. It's that age-old statement, are you mad that you did it, or are you mad that you got caught? Veneranda seemed like she got mad that she got caught for cheating. But yeah, she's basically framing Francesco for what happened, or not framing, but accusing Francesco for what happened, saying that he abused her and wanted to kill her and Stefano for sleeping together. But before he could follow through with his promise, Stefano showed up at the house and beat Francesco so badly that Francesco couldn't move, like he was unconscious. Veneranda panicked and couldn't move after, like she was frozen, paralyzed from what she just watched and basically seeing her husband beaten to death. So Stefano began cutting Francesco into different pieces to hide him all around town so they wouldn't get caught. And he forced Veneranda to participate or he said that he would go to the police and blame her for everything. Again, this is Veneranda's version of what happened. Because once Stefano took the stand, he had a very different tale to tell. Of course. Stefano Fantini claimed that once he was seduced by Veneranda, she persuaded him to murder Francesco for money. She attacked her husband by striking the back of his head with a club, and while he was incapacitated, she tied him up and shoved a skirt in his mouth to keep him from making too much noise. And she wasn't sure if she had killed him with the blow to the head, so to make sure, she grabbed a razor and slit his throat from ear to ear. And they didn't know what to do with the body, so they left him laying there for a few days until Veneranda suggested tearing the body part in order to hide the evidence. Using a long cheese knife, first cutting his legs, then head, and of course, once you dismember a body, the internal organs are going to slide out, for lack of better terms. So Veneranda threw those, the internal organs, down the pipes of her house, 
which ended up in the canal. This is this story is a little suspicious because it completely puts it all on Veneranda's shoulders. I personally don't know if a cheese knife could legitimately saw through bones. And also if Stefano wasn't at the house while it was all happening, how does he know it was a cheese knife? How does he know that he shoved a skirt in her mouth? He just seems to know a little too much for not being involved somehow. Let me look up a cheese knife. They're not as thick as a butcher knife, of course, but they are, you know, like dull. Ooh, a double-handed cheese knife. That could have done it if it was double-handed. One, oh wow, yeah. That looks, I could see that happening. 25 inches long. Oh, a 16 inch blade. Yeah, I could see that happening. See, I'm so used to obviously like the little charcuterie board cheese plate things, which who doesn't love a charcuterie board? One of the best things ever invented. But yeah, I could see if it was like a bit for like a block or a round of cheese. I could see that. Yeah, 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 for sure. But I still think they're both involved. I don't think one person did over the other. Maybe Veneranda actually like knocked him the fuck out and then called Stefano was like, help, I need like, I don't know what to do. And so he came over and they like collectively decided to kill him and dismember him. So I, it, it really, in my opinion, they're both at fault. And they both should be sentenced. But again, this is all circumstantial. They don't really have any evidence of any of this. They just have her word against his word, against Giovanni's word. And the magistrate, not knowing what else to do, decided to question friends, family, and neighbors of Veneranda and Stefano. And pretty much everyone agreed that she was a clever and sharp woman, as well as a known liar. She lied a lot. More interestingly, a noblewoman, Samaritana Pisani, hired Veneranda as a maid a few months prior. She was happy with Veneranda's work. However, a boatman who was also working for her claimed to have heard Veneranda say something to another servant. The servant girl and Veneranda were planning on killing Samarat... Samaritana for her money. And when the servant, Eseppo Fionin, she was happy with Veneranda's work. However, a boatman who was also working for the noblewoman, he claimed to have heard Veneranda say something to another servant. 
Veneranda and the servant were planning on killing Samaritana for her money. And when the servant, Eseppo Fionin, was questioned, he immediately confessed to Veneranda. He immediately confessed, saying that Veneranda tried to convince him to poison their boss. Obviously, Veneranda was fired. You know, if there's whispers about being poisoned, I would fire my staff too. Another witness claimed that Veneranda tried poisoning Francesco at least eight times before she ultimately murdered him, which tells me that she was just impatient and chose to murder him instead of waiting for the poison to take his life. And the accusation of the poisoning came from none other than her own daughter, Vittoria. She was saying that like, hey, yeah, mommy tried poisoning dad several times, just FYI. So because of all these accusations, the magistrate decided to look into Veneranda's first husband's death. Remember, she wasn't widow when she met Francesco. Her first husband died in Corfu, and no one investigated his death. Again, mainly because it was on the family to do the investigating. And if Veneranda committed the crime, of course, she didn't hire an investigator or a magistrate. Why would you hire someone to investigate you? And again, I I can't find much. I can't find much about her first husband, but Veneranda and Stefano were charged with the murder of Francesco, and they were sentenced to death. It all begs the question: Why did she commit the murder of her husband's husband? Probably husbands. Neither of them were wealthy. Maybe she killed Francesco to be with her new boy toy. Maybe she just enjoys killing. No one really knows. If the poison would have worked the way she had planned it, she may never have been caught. And maybe she would be murdering her new boy, Stefano. She tried poisoning Francesco with small red berries. They didn't say which small red berries, so there could be a few different options, specifically for the Veneto region. So one popular, I say popular, I should say common, berry in that region is belladonna meaning beautiful woman, also called the deadly nightshade. And again, it's probably the most common in the area, but they are darker in color. So I don't think this was the berry, but when you ingest belladonna, it can cause delirium, hallucination, and then death if you eat too many. Since it was said that they were red berries, I'm more inclined to believe they were either the European spindle, 
also more commonly known as Beretta del Prete, which means priest's cap for their shape and color. Again, I'll post photos on social media. The issue with these is that they were, they're more winter berries. So they're not really going to be found in June. So the other berry that I'm thinking it may be is the Italian Arum, also known as Italian Lords and Ladies, for whatever reason. They are bright red berries, and everything from the leaves to the fruits to the underground stems are poisonous. Like, everything about this plant is poisonous. Ingesting the berry can be fatal, but usually only for young kids and, like, pets, like dogs. So if Veneranda is giving them to a grown man, they may not be working the way she had hoped. He probably just got sick to his stomach and threw up. He wouldn't have died unless he was ingesting, like, a good amount. And at that point, I'd be questioning why I'm eating so many berries every goddamn day, all day long. Though this does make me think of that movie Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis about a famed fashion designer. Where he, like, meets a woman and ultimately she becomes his muse and, like, lover. Basically, she starts, he gets sick, and then she has to, like, take care of him. And so they get married and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you find out, like, this is a spoiler alert for Fanta Thread, but you find out that she's been poisoning him with random mushrooms she finds. And not enough to, like, kill him, but to keep him weak and manageable. But it's a really good movie. We also just got new mushrooms in at work. I work in an Italian restaurant. New mushrooms in for a burrata dish. So we're using cremini, portobello, maitake, hen of the woods, porcini, ovolini. And it really just (laughs) makes me think of all those people who were trying foods back in the day who had no idea what they were eating. And we're like, well... I might as well try it and see if I live or die. Like, how stressful. Because for berries and mushrooms, like, you really don't know. There are approximately 14,000 species of mushrooms. And around 70 to 80 species are poisonous to humans. Only a handful are deadly, but still, like, 70 to 80 species can make you sick. When it comes to berries, there are more than 400 species. I guess the rule is to avoid white and yellow berries because about 90% are poisonous. About half of the red species you see in the wild are poisonous, but mostly black and blueberries are edible. Something like 99% of black and blueberries are safe. Except that belladonna, don't eat those. Those little black berries belladonna not all nightshade is deadly just a handful though people do have nightshade uh, allergies and i stumbled across someone recently at work and i was like oh interesting anyway veneranda and stefano were executed in san marco square between the two pillars of san marco and santo daro 
on January 10th, 1780. They were beheaded, which is ironic. Karma, if you will. And Stefano's body was butchered in the square in front of anybody who wanted to see it. So, fun. Remember earlier when I said maybe at this time, 1700s, almost 1800s, they weren't going to carry a head around Venice to show people? Well, they're still beheading people and butchering bodies in the main square of Venice. So, I don't know. They loved gruesome shit back then. And I don't have a ghost story related to this murder because I do believe that whatever justice system was happening at the time got it right. I do think Veneranda did kill Francesco and mutilate his body to try and hide what she had done. And she suffered the consequences. So I think Francesco's soul is at ease. At the top, I brought up H.H. Holmes, Jack the Ripper, uh, Gila de Rey, because they're all like the first of everything. I did that because Veneranda Porta was the first female serial killer in Venice. So fun fact. And they're calling her a serial killer because they are considering both husbands, people she's murdered, and they do think that she has murdered more than them. Obviously, it can't be proven. They can only, well, they didn't, I don't, they didn't necessarily prove she killed Francesco, but it was obvious to the courts. So we'll never know because they killed her. But I am now going to tell you that story, that ghost story from my coworker. Okay, so my coworker was working at a camp on the north side of Mexico City one summer. He was a camp counselor. The camp was pretty big and used to be something similar, as he described it, something similar to a plantation. Each counselor was in charge of around 50 to 70 kids, which sounds insane. I've taught in a public school where I have like 30 kids in a class, and that's too much let alone 50 to 70. That's so many. And on this plantation-type camp house situation, there were multiple locations where the kids and counselors would sleep. Something like an east campus and a west campus, and the walk between the two was decently long. On the east side, there was about six cabins, each having multiple bunk beds. But one of the cabins had a second level, similar to like a tower. There was winding stairs that led up to the second level where a single bedroom was. No one really knows what the room was originally for. I'm, I guess we could assume that it was meant for a camp counselor to sleep in and have their privacy while the kids would sleep underneath. And from the tower, you could see from the front door, so you could see if anyone was leaving or approaching or 
whatever you need to do to keep the kids safe. But at this time, when my coworker was working there, none of the adults would sleep up there because it was said that years before, a little girl fell from the window and died. They didn't necessarily believe that she was haunting the cabin, but it was a creepy space. The kids were not allowed to go up there, and the counselors made sure that none of the kids knew that the young girl had died in the cabin or in front of the cabin. But one night, after walking across the campus to the west side, one of the counselors did a head count and was missing someone. They quickly realized that a young girl with Down syndrome was nowhere to be found. All the counselors immediately searched the campus, but after 45 minutes, she had disappeared. They eventually got to the West Campus, checking all of the cabins, and the last place they searched was, in fact, the tower where the young girl was found playing by herself, unharmed. The counselor told the young girl how worried they were that she had disappeared and asked what she was doing in the tower. And the girl responded, quote, I'm playing with the girl, unquote. The counselors freaked out and they never joked about the ghost girl living the tower ever again. Like I've said from the beginning, ghost children are the scariest ghosts there are. And not in like, they're going to like fuck you up or like scare you. But just the idea of a child being a ghost, it's creepy. Hearing giggling, not cute. Like I've seen my own, you know, ghost child and I wasn't scared. It felt more like he wanted to like play with me, but... And similar to this girl, she just wanted to play with the ghost. She just wanted to play with this ghost girl. They were just having fun. But ghost kids are not it. They have no chill. Anyway, that was his paranormal experience. He didn't see anything, but he was one of the counselors that uh, that was working at the camp when this girl was playing with the ghost. And why would this young young girl lie? There's no, you know, she's too young to do that. She's like, I saw a girl. We wanted to play. She was up in this tower, so I played with her. End of story. But yeah, everyone believed after that that ghosts were real and living in that cabin. Well, that's it for tonight's episode. Thank you all so much for joining me. Check out social medias for photos for tonight's episode, guest info, upcoming news. I do, it's, we're nearing the end of the season. There's only two more episodes. I have a very special guest for the finale episode, so please stay tuned. Also, please subscribe and or follow the podcast so you don't miss out on new episodes. And it really does help me create a little ghost crew with all of you. If you have any paranormal experiences to share, send them my way at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com or DM me on the socials. 
Could be anything from your godfather's face showing up in the flames of your fireplace to your bedroom walls dripping with blood. Let me know. Go watch horror movies. Get your Halloween costume put together. Carve some pumpkins. And I will meet y'all back here in a week after you all do some paranormal investigation. Because everyone loves a ghost story. The music is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Pop Star and listen to his music on any streaming platform. That's T H A I R. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on social media at p.e.p.e.munoz, M U N O Z. Got my information from Wikipedia. A book by David Busato called Venice Serial Killers and Culinary Love. <laughs>